everyone, and thanks for tuning in. The Turn and Talk podcast is an education-focused podcast that gives you an inside look into today's schools, classrooms, and the minds of educators in the words of real but anonymous classroom teachers and school staff. The mission of Turn and Talk podcast is to give the education mic back to those who actually do the important work of educating our children, the teachers, the school administrators, and the support staff. I'll invite them to our show and ask them questions, and you will hear their responses without filter. This interview was so informative and thoroughly enjoyable. Prospective and newer teachers, listen closely. Our guest today is a veteran teacher of history who shares a great many pearls of teaching wisdom. He's honest, he's very candid and humble, and has a wealth of knowledge about teaching history and teaching in general. I feel that history teachers are among the most important teachers in our schools and classrooms today, given the politics of our country and our history. As you listen to this interview, I think you might agree. Enjoy the episode. Our guest today has been in the field of education for over 20 years. I'm really excited to be speaking to him because he is someone who teaches uh, content similar to mine. Uh, he is a high school social studies teacher at a suburban public high school. Uh, we're very happy to have you here. Welcome. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. First thing we'll have to always start with is uh, tell us about your journey. How did you end up becoming a history teacher? That's interesting because, you know, my mother was a uh, Catholic school, elementary school teacher. And I I guess I had other teachers in my extended family. And if you caught me when I was in college, I would have, at the very beginning, never considered being a, a teacher. I was looking to maybe be a political journalist. And then when I got to college and realized, first of all, that my school that I picked didn't have a journalism major, <laughs> I started thinking a little bit deeper about it about a year or two late. But then uh, I took, I signed up for an education class to sort of fill out my schedule. And then I just got it in my head that this might be a good fit. I got a lot of positive feedback before I took any steps into it. And and then pretty soon, I had convinced myself that it was a good choice. And <laughs> I was just lucky that it ended up being a good choice. I, uh, I actually had a pretty rough time at the very beginning because... Uh, in my education classes, I, I got so much positive feedback from my professors. They would often have me uh, present uh, complex topics to the rest of the class and, and sort of take the lead on things that I developed an overconfidence. And, and I think that often comes with uh, teachers that feel comfortable uh, being in front of the room, which, which I did. So, so that overconfidence led me to create some blind spots in my methodology. So when I finally was in front of the room as a student teacher, I was a pretty spectacular failure. Oh, <laughs> yeah, it was pretty bad. I, uh, a lot of us can relate. Oh, I mean, it's everyone <laughs> Everyone should feel very ill-prepared when they're student teaching <laughs> because the yeah. enormity of what's in front of you is so vast. But I, it was pretty bad. By the end of my student teaching experience, uh, my field advisor and my cooperating teacher urged me to leave education. They said, uh, you won't be. A, we don't think you should be a teacher. <laughs> oh, God. We said, uh, and were this they is, wrong? Well, luckily they were, but <laughs> but they weren't entirely wrong either. Because I, I, at that moment at that in moment. time, I I really wasn't doing as good a job as I should. But they initially said, "Look, you, you don't know that much about history, and, and you don't explain things very clearly, and we don't think it's a good fit for you." And that was six months before I was graduating with my bachelor's, and I was all set to. I was going to be set to, to teach right after that. And uh, I tried a six-month internship in state legislature uh, for politics. I didn't enjoy the 
people in that field as much as mm-hmm. I thought I would. So then I gave it a shot when I came out of school. Off that negative experience, it's hard to get recommendations. So I ended up working in a very high needs district in New York. And it was the kind of place where if you walked in with certification, you were getting the job. Sure. And, uh, and that turned out to be really just a gift for me. So my very rough beginnings was really productive for me in a couple of ways. Because one, it started me from the place where I had erased my overconfidence, mm-hmm. which, which I needed to do. Mm-hmm. And I think all new teachers need to, to do. You have Humility. to start from a very humble place. And then also, it put me in a district that was so high needs and so foreign to my personal experience that it was something that I just, I valued so much from the beginning that as difficult as it was, I know I became a better teacher for it. And I'll, I'll just always be very grateful for the experience. But I probably wouldn't have begun in a place like that if things had gone according to plan at the very beginning mm-hmm. of my career. Mm-hmm. You said something about being sounded like a rock star student in uh, when undergrad. It, when it didn't matter. Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> yeah. well, that was my question, right? A lot of people say, you know, teaching is art and science. Some people say it's only science. Some people say it's only art. Uh, where do you fall in that? If you caught me at the beginning of my career and even 15 years ago, I would have uh, I would have said almost entirely art. And now I'm much more, I'm probably 60% science now. But I, I think it's a pivotal part is art and human interaction and uh, and knowing yourself. And I, I might be just a slower developer than, than mm-hmm. some, but I think usually when, when students ask me, uh, what does it take to be a good teacher? I usually say it comes down to just a couple of things. You have to know what you're talking about. And you have to know how to be interesting. And then you have to want to know your students. And with those things, I used to think it was all very artistic. And now I realize knowing yourself is scientific. Sure. Uh, knowing what you're talking about content-wise is, is really very scientific. And then knowing your students is, is way more scientific than I ever thought it was. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the more I de- delve into that, the more fascinating it is to me. So I used to think that if I if I answered that it was more scientific, it would drain the interest in humanity out of teaching. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't to me at all. I think it's it adds the complexity. I think it's actually really invigorating if you're willing mm-hmm. to go down that road. But you have to be willing for it to take a long time. And and even each day, you're going to feel a little uncomfortable with what you don't know. Every yeah. time you open a door and you, you look into some theory uh, about uh, education that was foreign to you, you're going to feel a little uncomfortable. You to be comfortable with that and i had to learn that early and then still kind of push through it that's why that that rough beginning was such a it was really such a gift were you at a middle school when you started in in the city yeah it was a kindergarten through eighth grade building and uh-huh. uh, i taught sixth seventh and eighth grade the neighborhood is most years the highest murder rate in the city it's mm-hmm. like a, a real when people hear that they ask you know they look at me and we'll get into my background and, <laughs> and i'm not a natural fit <laughs> for a place like that and uh and they'll always immediately people will look at me with a lot of uh, sympathy and Oh, that must have been really difficult for you. But I always say it's it's way more difficult for children to live there. I um, got there. It was just a learning experience was constant. Was the middle school right fit for you or do you feel like high school is where I you really should I prefer high school. Okay. I do. Although I really do prefer high school. But I see more value in, or I could see myself enjoying elements in middle school more as I realize how kind of scientific things are that, you know, children are very complex and that's a very complex time. Mm-hmm. But when I was 22 years old, I taught my first year and then some of my kids went off to high school and came back and they seemed like completely different people, mm-hmm. even as ninth graders, mm-hmm. way easier to talk to. And, uh, and I thought, well, why am I not where they are? 
I want to. I want to. If they're a little bit more like regular human beings, then that's where I want to be. And, yeah. uh, at the time, because I was just trying to get my bearings, uh, yeah. any kind of advantage where if they were a little bit more um, steady emotionally, that would help me mm-hmm. because I was trying to do everything all at once. So uh, yeah, so I got the opportunity to teach in high school, and I always, I always was interested in uh, more complex content too. So oh, I get that in high school. Cool. So tell us a little bit more about what you do right now. What do you teach? So uh, so I teach AP U.S. Government and Politics for 12th graders. That's a class that I brought to our school about 12 years ago because I was a political science major in, in college. I've always enjoyed that. And and before that, I taught AP U.S. History and AP European History. But then I've always uh, also taught uh, students are more challenged. So I teach uh, 10th grade global studies, what they call global history, in an inclusion setting. And most of the department lead teachers. Prior to that, when the job still existed, I was the uh, I was the department chairperson for middle school and high school in our district. Cool. And um, yeah, so I always have a, a lot of influence over what my own schedule is, and I have a lot of say of what the other people in my department teach. So I always tried to make sure that I had a balance. If I was going to take the opportunity to teach uh, high level students, high performing students, then I always wanted to keep a strong foothold in um, teaching students that are where learning comes much more slowly. Cool. I like the balance. Of it. I always admire people who teach really high level courses because I just feel it's so beyond me to teach anything like that. So I really appreciate it. What do you find? Do you think it's easier or harder to teach AP courses? Well, I usually say it's easier in class and harder outside of class. And then the inclusion classes are harder in class, but easier outside of class. Mm-hmm. The grading load is is much more uh, difficult for AP. You, you spend a lot of time grading essays. You have to conform to a much stricter curriculum, even than a state curriculum. And there's tons of content to consume. And then also the kids are, well, it's, it's not just, they're different than some of the the students that are in an inclusion class. They both demand a lot of creative planning, but the AP kids, the nature of that kind of creative planning is much more focused on, um, I guess, making very complex ideas accessible. And the inclusion class is a little bit more about making ideas that are not very complex, but more memorable and accessible for them. What you're saying is really interesting to me because you've been in the field long enough to have learned about probably maybe have experienced the concept of tracking. Oh, yeah. What's your opinion on that, this idea that should all students be in AP classes? Should there only be an AP class and then everybody should be there? Or do you think there should be different levels? What's your personal experience? On- I I have very uh, clearly defined views on this because, <laughs> because we have these conversations a lot. I think that, in at least in a high school setting, it makes sense to always have one, what I would call, challenge level. So to have one higher track is, is always important. And I guess challenge is a good word for it because I'm very open to the idea of, of students having a, a pretty wide open door if they want to challenge themselves. Great. I think having one upper level is is important for differentiation. I do not think there should be. So, so when I say there's one upper level, I'm talking about two. So you have two, you have a general, which should be rigorous, then a challenge level. I don't think there should be three. And we've had that problem in our school district where we've had AP and then we've had honors and then we've right, had right, right. regular level. And the honors class, when you combine it with AP, is very problematic hmm. because so. because it's like you take all the A-level students and you put them into AP. Mm-hmm. Then you take all the B-level students and you put them into honors. And then you define the lowest track by C-level students or below. Oh, yeah. 
Whereas if you had A-level students or anybody else looking to challenge themselves and can meet those standards, if they're in the top track and then everybody else represents the, the general track, that's a more normal distribution. But really when you have three tracks, it sounds like you're offering more challenging options when really all you're doing is defining the lowest track and as, as kind of like segregating right you're definitely segregating and in some school districts a lot of these um, levels are defined by race and other districts they're pretty homogenous so that doesn't factor into it mm -hmm. but if you if you relegate students who are not looking to take the most rigorous track but you're relegating them into classes where the best students tend to average a c mm -hmm. and then below that creates a big problem for students mm -hmm. so so i do think we should have that one track uh, at the top. I think it, the door should be pretty wide open and fluid so if people try something they can right, right, right. say look it turns out this is a little too hard for me mm -hmm. but I think once you add that third level it becomes it becomes really systemically problematic. Mm -hmm. So I've always been a fan of it. Now if you're if there's an AP class that exists I think you should do something like that or I we don't have IB in our school but if you had IB that could be your, your challenge level. If neither of those exist then you could call it honors and make a very rigorous curriculum. Right. But when there is a top level, I'm firmly against having a level below that. Right. Either challenge yourself at that top level or being a rigorous general level that has a normal distribution of, of kids. I don't know where I fall yet. I, th I think I'm still in my journey where I'm trying to understand this. I definitely see the consequences of, of tracking, especially the three-tier model you're talking about. I can see that and understand that. For me, it is harder to, as a teacher in the classroom, from that perspective, it is hard for me to imagine how to do that below the AP level, whichever second model there is, right. to do that well. How, do, how As a teacher, how do you do that well? Because, you know, you're saying that, yes, all students should be in there and they should be challenged to the best of their ability. They should be, they should have access to the best possible curriculum, the best teacher. And then when you do that, you know what happens. You have within the classroom several subgroups of students forming, mm -hmm. right? There's a student who are finding the content challenging. Some are less interested. Some are less engaged. Some are lower level readers. Some are higher level writers. So when that starts happening, can you do justice to teaching really rigorous course in a diverse classroom? It's because I do both. I When I picture really rigorous, I, I know that I'm I'm not able to deliver the same kind of rigor I would in an AP class with, with my general level students. But I also am old enough to remember when I first got to my high school, I taught non-regents classes. Mm -hmm. And uh, I did that for about two or three years. And when you say non-regions for our listeners, what does that mean? So that was um, a, a track. So in New York, we have uh, our general, well, now our general level is called regents. But mm -hmm. uh, regents used to be a considered sort of better than average track that you could opt into. And most, I'm not sure even most, I would say a large percentage of, uh, of students would take that track. And then there would be a track below it called non-regents. And oh. that was really what was, if we went back 20 or 25 years ago, that was the general track. So we had non-regents, then regents, and then you could take AP on top of that. So they have a test at the end of the track? Regents is at, has a state exam at the end. And For every you, subject? 
Right. And then not, and then even non-regents had their version of a state exam, but it was much less rigorous. So when I first got there, you might teach the non-regents classes or the regents classes or an AP class. Mm -hmm. And uh, I came in non-regents. And then about two or three years into my career, New York State announced that all, all students would be at least on a regents track. And that was an experience I had having gone to a Catholic school. There was no option to go beneath the regents track. Mm -hmm. But the idea that in all public schools, all students would take regents exams, meaning they were all on a regents track, was really disruptive. People were really concerned about it because for decades, Mm -hmm. people, there was always probably in most districts, you know, 20 or 30 percent of the kids didn't even attempt to go on this higher regents track. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, everyone was going to be in it. And it was, I found that we got very, or we got much better anyway, at, at meeting the demands of bringing these students who are normally not challenged higher. I'm not sure if we ever completely effectively did it. They, the plans from 25 years ago was with a world where even students in a self-contained special ed class would end up passing these tests at the same level as everyone mm-hmm. else. I think there was a bit of an overestimation of the power of teaching. And we've seen over the last 20 or 25 years, they've sort of backed off or found ways to uh, give the appearance that everyone was at that level and really they weren't. Right, right. But I do think, I mean, I remember out of that, one of the solutions to uh, to addressing this idea of everyone being on this regents track was inclusion program. I was the first inclusion socialized teacher in my building mm. And that was 21 years ago. And it was sort of like we threw our hands up and said, well, we better do something different if we're going to have the students that normally were never invited to to be at this level of rigor if they're all of a sudden going to to be doing it. And there's been huge success stories with that. Great. There's definitely been some students left behind. I think the state's begun to back off it a little bit. I'm not entirely against a little bit of that retreat or it's a kind of a Mm -hmm. redeployment or whatever. But but it was um, that was that was a big moment early in my career as I entered the high school. And I do think it pushed education to get more creative and less track focused. Thanks for sharing that. I also wanted to ask you as a teacher of history and social studies, what do you imagine your job to be? Oh, it's really interesting, especially nowadays. It's like, yeah, because you teach uh, government and politics right now. It's, and it's to very young Fertile minds. Yeah, and uh, and they're products of the culture that we're living in too. So I, when I when I think about America right now, it it doesn't concern me that people have opinions. It does concern me that they kind of harden themselves into camps. Mm-hmm. So whether it be my students or my friends or even family members, mm-hmm. uh, people look at politics and then sometimes retroactively at history through a tribal lens, which is a pretty irrational way of looking at it. Mm-hmm. And so as a teacher, I, I don't like that. I think people almost picture themselves as having like a tattoo that says they're liberal right. or conservative. And, and every time they are taking information, they just sort of glance down at their tattoo and say, <laughs> well, what was my tattoo telling me to think about right, this? Right. Like, uh, every time I can try and break that down, uh, with students is, is pretty important to me. So I'm very adamant about trying to present information. I, I hate to say from both sides because that implies there's only two sides. Right. But from multiple perspectives to not come to too many conclusions unless we're talking about something that's fact-based. I mean, if something is factual, I'm pretty adamant about the idea of telling kids 
There are things that are true and simply not true. But they're always pushing the idea of multiple perspectives. My number one thing that my kids have to work against all of the United States and probably outside the United States, but everyone needs to guard against and what I try and do it in my classroom is guard against the idea that nothing can be believed at all. We worry, I, I remember reading a study about early effects of the internet and people wanted to study if it was harder or if it was easier to get people to believe lies mm-hmm. once the internet came into broad mm-hmm. usage. And that's an interesting question. Right. Can, is it easier to lie to people? And at least in this one particular study, what they found was that it wasn't easier to get people to believe lies. It was just harder to get people to believe anything. Oh, wow. That's a really, that, that's a, been a very mm-hmm. challenging thing to do deal with in in school because people do tend to believe things that confirm their biases you know a lot of confirmation bias uh, going on and and you want to challenge kids to take in all the information and and draw new conclusions so sometimes it's correcting errors just just today one of my former students i was on social media and and i i have no problem making connections in social media with (laughs) former students right and uh and she posted something about the minimum wage and she said in 1968 it was a dollar 15 and then if with inflation it should be $21.50 today, but it's only seven twenty-five. And I thought, oh, that's crazy. I can't. Is I it? looked that up and apparently on the national average, it's seven twenty-five. dollars oh. But the inflation rate for $1.25 from 1968 to today is $9, not $21. That, right, right, right. It didn't go up 20 times. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I yeah, run into yeah. that problem where it's great to see someone politically engaged. They want to engage in the, the conversation, but they're bringing things that are incorrect. I mean, that's wildly off to right. say that that a dollar back then was worth $21 today when really mm. it's worth nine. So sure, you don't sure. want to, you want to correct, but you don't want to put out their spark either. Exactly. And so I, I'm always trying to uh, create an environment in class where you say, let's discuss how complex things are and let's not be afraid to bring in all sorts of information and let's always be self-critical and reflective. And then we don't all have to come to the same conclusion. But in the process, you got to recognize facts too. So, you know, with, right now with the Trump administration, it's, it's challenging as a government teacher because on a couple of different levels, there are students that do not like the president mm-hmm. and they sometimes overstate his actions as completely unprecedented for a president. Sure. And, and I will tell you, sometimes they are mm-hmm. <laughs> pretty unprecedented, <laughs> but, uh, but they're, they're not entirely unprecedented. So I used to have to correct that and say, look, this is not a situation that has never happened in American mm-hmm. history before, or this is analogous to something that was done under the previous administration, President Obama even. Or, so I'm, I'm always trying to put it in perspective, reset things. But the one thing about telling things from multiple perspectives is you could go too far with that, trying to give some kind of alternate explanation for all things right? to the point where you're certainly coming off as unbiased, but then you're dishonest. So if I if I told students, if I said, well, no, I know President Trump said this, but one way to look at it, he might be right in this way. Right. Sometimes he's completely factually incorrect. And you, you have a responsibility to tell students when that happens. So hard. It is. And then you also have a responsibility of telling students when it, what he said is not entirely incorrect, which some Trump supporters, students love to hear when you, you sound defensive of him and some mm-hmm. and, and vice versa. And then I guess 
in the background of all of it, I'm very big on sharing when I make mistakes yeah. or very big on sharing when I don't know something, if mm-hmm. I don't understand. I'll pose questions that I don't have answers to because I try and model that too. So I, I posted some kind of article about Trump's tax plan. This is something, you know, I posted on social media, which is not connected to any of my current students. Right. But I posted something that was critical of the tax law that was passed in Trump's first year. And, and one of my friends who's a, an accountant, he just commented, he said, this article is filled with inaccuracies. Uh. And, <laughs> And I like the article because I didn't like the Trump tax plan. So I was happy to see it and I posted it and I thought right, it was right. really going to help me make my point. And when he posted that, I, I took it down and I said, thanks, right. for, thanks for telling me. It is really outside my area of expertise. I shouldn't have done that. But I always share that with my students. That's that amazing. Yeah. I always have to tell them, like, look, I, I did that. And I was a little too quick to, to put information out there. And even if it confirmed my feelings, it was factually not true. So it's part of the process. In a way, are you trying to teach students to question everything or are you... Question everything, but realize that there, you, you can come to well-reasoned conclusions. Sure. Because there are some students, all they'll do is question. I mean, they're teenagers, so they end in cynicism sometimes. Mm-hmm. But so adults now, too, they'll say, I, I really, I hate it when, when people talk about politics and they go, oh, they're all a bunch of liars. Mm-hmm. And there's no sense of relative difference between people. I mean, some people are deliberately making appeals to ignorance. And some people just have a different perspective than you. And you can get pretty good at finding the politicians that are making appeals to ignorance. And they occur all throughout the ideological spectrum. There are liberal, conservative, and everyone in between. They are smart enough to know that what they're telling people is factually incorrect. And uh, those people, in my opinion, you should not support, regardless whether they're on on the spectrum. I don't tell kids that conclusion, but in my own opinion. But I tell them, look, if I see somebody and I really feel like they know what they're saying is not true and they're just appealing to ignorance, then then they've lost my support. I don't right. give them names with it. But then there are other people who are very intellectually honest. I just don't agree with their conclusions. A lot of people say that for teachers, especially when you're learning to become a teacher, you're asked to keep your political views out of the classroom, keep your religious beliefs out of the classroom. But it sounds to me like your classroom is entirely political. So how do you balance well, that? B- because we study politics, But I will say I never tell students how I vote until the day after the election because and I I feel like I'm bragging. There are students that literally don't know after the 2016 election, which was really polarizing. It wasn't like 2012 where some people felt "Eh, I might go this way, I might go that way. People really hardened in their positions. And I had some students who were really excited to know how I voted. And Hmm. part of me thought, well, how could they not have known how I voted? But they didn't. And I thought, well, that's good. Yeah, because if they all guess, like I should do that. I should take a little date on it. I should say, all right, everyone write down who you think I voted for. Right. And and then see, I think they'd be more often correct, but I hope if they're 100% correct, then I think I'm doing something wrong. Maybe you're too biased and you're yeah. showing your... Honestly, once you, once you entertain alternative theories on things, different perspectives, like that's the, one of those definitions of intelligence is to be able to hold two contradictory right, ideas right, right. in your mind at the same time. Once you can model that, people in popular culture see that so infrequently. Is it cognitive dissonance? That's the concept, right? Right, which it's it's cognitive dissonance when you comfortably keep them there, (laughs) which is a problem. Where you say like, well, I always say it. I explain it when kids kids get this. I say it's like when people are racist. You say I don't like this particular group of people. They're not trustworthy and 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 they're lazy or whatever. And then if you say, well, what about Jim? They go. 
oh, he's cool. Right. Everybody else is <laughs> in that yeah, yeah. cognitive dissonance when you're keeping these things comfortably. I think it's healthy when you keep two uncomfortable positions that are conflict with one another and you understand they're in conflict and you are willing to at least entertain both ideas. I think when you come to your conclusion, it's stronger when you really entertain those two things. Mm-hmm. So to ask questions about how effective a president Donald Trump is or Barack Obama and really look at the pro and con, keep it in your head and entertain both sides with a decent amount of, if you look at it realistically, when you can do that, if you do that in front of the kids, they don't see that very often. Mm-hmm. So they almost, I become kind of a tough nut to crack. Like, I don't know what this guy's thinking. Right. Because everybody else picks one tribe and just goes with it, you right. know? And and I don't want that from them. And I, I'll tell them explicitly. I'll say like, look, you guys know more about the American political system than most Americans do because you're taking a college level class in it. You have a responsibility now that you know what you know, to not use that information to bludgeon people with it. That is not what I taught you the information for. This mm-hmm. is not so that you can make an appeal to ignorance and get the upper hand on someone that doesn't know it the way you know it. It's not so that you can, oh, I hate this too, when you see online, someone will post a video that says, uh, so-and-so annihilates conservative oh, yeah, on this yeah, yeah, or absolutely too. destroys liberal. That's not, I, I'll tell them, look, that's not what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to go out there and be informed and entertain alternative perspectives and then whatever you come up with. I really don't care, you know, but if it's well-reasoned, that's great. If it's based on things that are fact, like verifiably false, then they should be embarrassed. If they're not entertaining different perspectives, then how confident are they really? Their conclusions. What would you say? I've heard this term, think like a historian. Almost yeah. every subject nowadays that, you know, we have as teachers, we are asked to teach kids to think like yeah. a writer, to think <laughs> like a reader. Think like a historian. <laughs> what, is, anyone, what is that? If anyone who's listening is a social studies teacher, if you haven't yet, you should definitely check out the website, SHEG, which is Stanford History Education Group, mm-hmm. and their, their whole series of lessons called Think Like a Historian are fantastic. It's it's about assessing credibility of information and corroborating information and and drawing connections. So we used to just if you hopped in my classroom in a time machine 15 years ago, it was me with a piece of chalk and kids with their notebooks open and me telling pretty great stories. That's something I'm pretty good at. Now, and I prefer this uh, this method. Now they don't write notes down. They don't have to simply record information. I give them information and we kind of analyze it and we try and think like a historian. So we had an interesting conversation, you'd appreciate this from your studies, about the difference between quantitative and qualitative information mm-hmm. and, and what's good about one and what's good about the other and you know, positives and negatives. And uh, and this was with my 10th grade inclusion class, mm-hmm. special education students and, and general level education students. And we had this great conversation. First of all, looking at uh, approval ratings, ratings of approval for the impeachment of Donald Trump. And we realized it was quantitative data. And I said, what are conclusions that we can make from this data? We had it from last March until late December. And I, I said, could we say that most Americans don't, or more Americans think that this is a big waste of time? And you couldn't say it quantitatively. And I explained this was like a, the data we're looking at was an, an average of dozens of polls. So mm. not just one single right. source, which is important. And it turns out, I think approval for the impeachment process in late December was something like 47.7%. And disapproval of impeachment was something in the ballpark of 44%. I said, so no, you can't factually say that more 
Americans are against it. But you also can't say that most Americans are, are for it. it. Right, right. You know, and, and we kind of picked that apart. And I said, so this, in a world we live in, that's very disappointing for people. People sure. want, they want the killer statistic to <laughs> annihilate their opponent. <laughs> right. And uh, so we kind of looked at that. And then we, um, we kind of, these are the, my classrooms filled with like stretches and analogies. And but we were about to start studying as part of a lesson on industrial revolution, curriculum wise in the 1800s. But we started by studying um, child labor in Bangladesh today, mm-hmm. and I had found an interesting, really long study filled with quantitative and qualitative data about child labor in Bangladesh. And, and I introduced how you can decipher data, looking at the Trump impeachment mm-hmm. approval information. And then we pivoted to this question about, has industry been a positive or a negative for Bangladesh? And uh, it was good because it had real-life relevance, which is important. Yeah. It was happening right now. We started the whole lesson by everyone spending a few minutes finding things in the room, especially their clothes, that were, had information where it was made. Oh, wow, that's so cool. Where it was made. Yeah, yeah. So, so we'll run around the room. We had chart paper, different um, regions of the world, and they have to if their sweatshirt was made in Korea, they'd have to put it on the Asian page. And mm-hmm. and uh, and that kind of got us in the mood to see where a lot of things were manufactured. Yeah, it, it, it was cool. And, and so we're looking at having them get into this question about, you know, if it's good for, uh, for students in Bangladesh. And thinking like a historian, even a modern question like that, you have to get into, do I trust the, the data? What's their sample size? There was an interest. It was filled with all sorts of, you know, really bad news about <laughs> yeah. students working in factories in Bangladesh. Mm-hmm. But one of the questions... <laughs> probably given about 17 charts and sources of information. One of them was when the kids were asked, do you feel like you're treated well at the factory or not well or very well? And something like 80% of the, st- the factory workers said they were treated well. Hmm. And it was a great little data point out there. To, so I, I really tried to model it. I go, like, hey, seem, well, what do you think of that? The kids, they say they're treated well. And it's, Isn't that odd? Expect, and they go right? like, yeah. <laughs> and I said, because in this other one, it said something like 30% had had serious injuries at work. And then this other one's 80% said they were treated well well at work. So how do you reconcile that? And that's sort of thinking like a story. And I say, we used to, we would just give them the textbook, which is the secondary source and all that work had been done for them. Already, right, right. You know, you now it. it's, you're trying to say, this is how they construct textbooks if they're done well, where they, they take multiple sources and, and they acknowledge the kids, even in that comparatively lower level class, they were saying, well, maybe the people, maybe their bosses were in the room when they got asked that question, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, maybe. And then yeah. maybe they just don't know how they should be treated. Maybe we shouldn't be judging them. Maybe it was, th- and that's, I think, thinking like a historian is you're trying to get them to ask more questions and then eventually come to conclusions that are based on reasoning, but they don't all have to conform at the end. So on the topic of reconciling things, right? In my head, I don't have an idealized image of a historian. Right. I know there are historians who have done justice to the field and reported responsibly and recorded history and told history responsibly. And then there's also historians who've done it differently, yeah. right? So when we say think like a historian, in my head, there's this conflict. Do I really want? Obviously, you're trying to help kids do the positive things, right. not the not dark historian. Yeah. But where is the space to actually recognize that thinking like a historian can also be problematic or any expert? Well, that's one of the things that it's almost like a gift to us that they're 
with so many biased historians that you can show that to students. Right. But as you're showing that to them, you just don't want to appeal so much. You want to ignite their cynicism a little bit so that they have healthy skepticism. Sure. But you don't want to ignite it to the point where they don't believe in anything. Right. So it's so you want to say, you better watch out because there are people who are appealing to your ignorance at times, mm-hmm. you know, or to people's ignorance. And then, but it is not a hopeless task to try and figure out. You get a little closer to the truth. And then I always, if I read something, Something that changes my perspective on a, a moment in history, I really like to share. In first couple of minutes of class, completely out of context, mm-hmm. I'll say, I was just reading this really fascinating book on on this particular uh, you know part of history. I'll say, I always thought this, but now I'm, I think that. Mm-hmm. I'll talk about conversations that I have with people that change my perspective, things I read, kind of obsessed with podcasts, actually, some <laughs> podcasts I heard that changed my perspective. So that's, I think, thinking like a historian, too, yeah. but a professional, you know, that's always open to changing their conclusions. Yeah. Someone like a critical historian. Yeah. You know, yeah. which is really, I mean, that's the best you can do. Sure. Yeah, I'll often say anybody who says that they have this particular issue completely figured out and everybody else is wrong, I said, I would urge you to be pretty skeptical of that person. Right. Because I've been studying this for decades and it's still a little bit beyond my grasp. Mm-hmm. So. Well, we're running out of time. I want to ask you this one last question about American public education. Sure. You've been in a very high need area. You've done urban and now you're in a suburban setting over so many years. Do you think our education system is broken something is wrong? Do you think it's facing a lot of problems or do you feel optimistic about our system? I'm a pretty naturally optimistic person. I'm also, I figured I'd work this into responses at some point because I think probably the best advice I could give is to as best you can be as grateful for the opportunity to be in the field and I really that's why I know that I have about 10 years more to teach in a high school or I transition to something different before I retire and I just can't believe that it's only 10 years left like I actually start to think I really hope I get this right Mm-hmm. before I'm done, you know, so right. I'm really grateful for the opportunity. And I think that's one of the problems that we've run, run into is that there are people who are kind of lacking gratitude for the opportunity to work in schools. So if there's a new teacher listening to this or a prospective teacher, it really rubs me the wrong way. If I if I don't get a sense of gratitude at the opportunity uh, mm-hmm. to teach, I know you're stressed because uh, like I said at the beginning, I they told me to leave the field again. <laughs> and that was very stressful. Yeah. But, but your baseline has to be that you really feel grateful to work with kids. If you don't, I don't think you'll be effective. I've never really met a teacher or an administrator that was effective if they didn't feel a certain gratitude at the opportunity to work with kids. Like mm-hmm. If I try to engage people in a conversation about some of the most interesting students they have this year or some of the most interesting students in the building, if they can't engage in that conversation, I, mm-hmm. I don't know if they'll be effective as an educator. So I've worked with some fantastic administrators and then some that are not as fantastic. And mm-hmm. usually the ones that are not, not that good are the ones that didn't seem to really like working with kids, mm-hmm. you know, and I just don't think that it translates. So, no. so I do think that there are some folks that are lacking gratitude. My basic advice is do, do not complain to almost to anyone besides your closest friends that you need to have, blow off steam with. But if people hear you complain a lot and they don't think you're, you're grateful, I, I think it's a bad sign. Yeah. But I say, especially early on, but I, I would say that even if you're in the field for 25 sure. years. You know? So I yeah, I wouldn't say it's broken. I look at it kind of from a historic mark, <laughs> you know, and I, I realized when I got into education in the late 1990s to now, there's been these massive changes 
from government policy to technology to the culture and how people access information. So I actually think that we have had lots of hiccups and difficulties, but I think it's natural given how how much transition we've been going through. So if we looked at this on a 50-year arc and we look back on this time and you look at all the things that have changed, of course, of course, we're just figuring it out. You know, so right. I don't lose heart about it. But um, but I do think a lot of the problems we've had about standardization, I think that kind of thing, it's created a problem in that we're trying to make a lot of what we do, which is very complex, fit into very neat boxes. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't think it's entirely possible. And I think we need to have a little bit more local freedom to be innovative because I think that's when we'd be at our best. And, and I think when you get those opportunities to be innovative, it's going to going to maybe make the educators recognize what they should be so grateful about yeah. and kind of free them from some of the stuff that is just pretty restrictive. All right. Thank you for your time. No problem. On this one last segment, I promise you we're going to oh, do yeah, right. <laughs> So let's see. We're going to do a rapid fire. I'm going to give a word or a phrase. And the first thing that comes to your mind, you should say it, whether it's a phrase or a word also. Okay. This is something I wanted to talk to you more about during the interview, but we ran out of time. But here's the first word. Project-based learning. Engaging, lots of critical thinking, higher-order thinking. Awesome. (laughs) Differentiation. Necessary and difficult. Special education. It's a great opportunity, complex. Education research. It's dry, but it's important. (laughs) Okay. Keeps the field relevant. Standardized state tests. Important for accountability, but not not the end, just the means. SATs. Just an approximation. The New York Mets. (laughs) Sadness and joy. Podcasts. I love them. Yeah. A teacher's life. Oh, it's a gift. I really, I I just, uh, I feel really grateful and I, I don't think I'd ever really be able to, to pay it back, you know, so just that's, yeah, it's a great opportunity. Alright, well thank you on that note Alright And that's all for today's episode Folks, thank you for tuning in Turn and Talk Podcast is your one-stop shop For learning about what is actually happening In schools today directly from the people Who are working in today's schools The support for this podcast comes from listeners Like yourself, people who are interested In the present and the future of education So feel free to head on over to our Patreon page at patreon.com Slash Turn and Talk Podcast We invite you to also Follow us on Instagram at turn and talk podcast if you haven't subscribed yet please go ahead and do that too so that all future episodes are available to you upon release and downloaded immediately to your device if you have questions thought feedback or if you work in a school and would like to take the mic back please please email us at turn and talk podcast at gmail.com thank you for tuning in this is your host jay mcsuits signing out peace